So in November of 2019, I decided to work at a hospital. So you've been doing security consistently, and unless you've been living under a rock, you know that 2020 had some healthcare snafus, let's say. So what was it like working in the hospital during pandemic, but also one of the most polarizing times politically? What mm. is up, people? Welcome to Self Defense Small Angles. This week we have the show, my friend Shane. Shane is a security professional working in healthcare, and I was really excited to have him on the show because, as you all know, I'm constantly looking for guests that are actually working in the space. And I've known Shane for a long time, actually, before Shane was us in security. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm happy. Yeah, it finally worked out. We had to do a reschedule and then everything fell apart. Uh, Shane, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I uh, am a longtime martial arts nerd. Um, I grew up wanting to be a Power Ranger. And I, I think that I am perhaps unusual uh, in the security space because I've started fairly late. Uh, a lot of folks in hospital security are in their... Uh, late teens and early 20s. And I uh, kind of got into the work in my mid 30s. I was, uh, you know, I, as I said, I've been doing martial arts for forever. And uh, I got roped in with the violence dynamics crew and uh, kind of expanded to self-defense as a, as a broader topic. And as I got more engaged with that, I started thinking, oh, maybe I, I know some things that I can actually put to use and help people with. And uh, so uh, in November of 2019, I decided to work at a hospital, and that's where it's been. It's been kind of a, a proving ground and an adventure for me, um, and hopefully it's, it's been good for people I've interacted with along the way. Um, that's, that's been the goal, at least. Right. So you've been doing security consistently, and unless you've been living under a rock, you know that 2020 had some healthcare snafus let's say so what was it like working in the hospital during one uh during a pandemic but also one of the most polarizing times politically the the pandemic was uh was strange because my hospital uh is uh emphasizes mental health it's one of the largest uh has one of the largest numbers of inpatient mental health beds in the entire midwestern united states and so that traffic during the pandemic actually cut off. We actually were really slow during the, the early and, and kind of up to the height of the pandemic. But uh, in regard to, uh, in, to the murder of George Floyd, you know, the, the, a lot of the ramifications of that are, are being felt more now that things have re restored to normal in terms of uh, traffic to the hospital. Um, and it just, the hospital is a big bureaucratic machine and it takes forever for them to do anything. Right. And especially if the hospital in particular has not yet been sued for the uh, precipitating incident. So it's what it's meant is uh, in the very least, a lot of consciousness. And I might even say uh, just fear around use of force, both from I mean, there, there's always a kind of, I think, been a concern 
when it comes to folks in security or people who use force, there's, you know, there's always a concern about, you know, what are we justified to do? Uh, how does, how does thing, how do things look to observers? But I think that the public is more, it's conscious in a certain sense. They are more aware that violence happens and sometimes it's bad, but that, I kind of wish we'd go a little deeper uh, in terms of what people know and understand about, about the professional use of force and what violence looks like. Right. Um, but that, but I would say that there is, to some extent, still an expanded awareness in spite of uh, the fact that it doesn't go as far as I might like. Well, that makes sense. So if I can paraphrase what you're saying, during sure. the pandemic, people were less annoying than they are now. Like you're saying, you're, you feel the ramifications more now that there's a sense of normalcy again than, than during the actual height of the pandemic. Well, so, I mean, the immediate impact of the issues with George Floyd were that anytime we went hands-on with anybody in the hospital, they immediately couldn't breathe. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, that's that's just a, something we noticed an uptick in, is that people would claim to not be able to breathe. Right. And, you know, and that's not to diminish it or say one thing one way or another. Um, but that was the, the kind of immediate fact of the matter. It's... It's more in terms of policy uh, that the changes have happened recently. The, right. um, the hospital has revamped their um, their use of force policies for we. So as a large uh, mental health hospital, we have psychiatric associates right. um, who are supposed to be kind of the the first to deal with any sort of you know behavioral emergencies or violent events involving patients and. Their whole use of force uh, training has been revamped, um, and they're doing a whole lot to alter who responds to these kinds of things. What counts as a security incident versus a, a clinical incident, and um, and as I said, that's kind of just rolling out now. That's that's the change we're seeing that's happening now. Right. So, po- in a post Floyd world, mm-hmm. the the changes were slow moving. Like you said, the hospital was a is a large bureaucratic machine. And it took a lot of time to implement the changes, but now the changes are being implemented. Do you, I don't know if, do you feel, I don't want to get you in trouble, but like, are they, I'm sure it's not a smooth transition to the new policy. It never seems to be where it's like, oh, let's do this new thing. Then everybody's on the program, right? So is, has it made your job more difficult because the policy changes are in place? So there's a certain extent to which I can't answer the question because I didn't know what security work was like you know, I, I had a few months of security work prior to any right. of this happening. I can say that there is a lot more consciousness of what is referred to as patient-centered care. Okay. And and that I was think, in that was in quotes for the people listening yes. to the audio. Shane yeah. did quotes under patient-centered care. Keep going. And that refers to the fact that you know people in the hospital. Um, there are conditions under which we can detain individuals if they are deemed by a doctor to be a risk to themselves or to others. But beyond that, you know, you're there to get help for something and your, uh, your rights should not be curtailed in any way. Right. And there's some kind of sticky area around where does a patient's right to not feel like they're in jail cross into them? When are they impinging on the rights of other patients? So right. a, a kind of a concrete example of that is that over time, the hospital has encouraged staff not to redirect patients who are just kind of wandering the hallways to go back to their rooms. 
Okay. Um, you know, so that that was kind of a standard security feature at the hospital earlier on where, you know, patients could come out, ask questions of their nurses if they need water, need to go to the bathroom, whatever. But um, over time, the uh, they've come to allow just kind of hanging out or, you know, playing board games or whatever, just kind of in the main thoroughfares of a hospital, which is much more difficult from a security standpoint. And I would argue has is of dubious value. There's one of the that I mean, one of the kind of unfortunate things that's happened in terms of the traffic at the hospital is that we now are getting a huge influx of minors mm-hmm. who are who have been abandoned essentially okay. and are boarding at the hospital for long periods of time. Um, the lo- the longest I'm aware of has been at our hospital for over a year. Interesting. Um, okay. And the and so. There's and a lot of times they'll end up boarding in the adult ER for months at a time. And so there comes to be a question of, well, this patient is, you know, we are legally required to keep them here. They, you know, can't, you know, they they can't look out for themselves if they're out in the world. Uh, But being in the hospital, the normal rules would say, okay, that means you're in your room all the time. You don't get to see the sun. You don't get to get exercise. You know, and so how do we accommodate the kind of needs of a human being with the fact that we're really not set up to right. to have people live in that space for long periods of time? Well, and that um, makes sense. It should be like a tra- transitional place and some long-term care, but not an ER especially. This, right. That's very hard too, because right, like you're saying, the standard protocol is like stay in your room. It's easier for crowd control. Uh, the communal side of things, sure, it feels better on a service side, but is there a benefit to it, especially when safety is concerned? But like you said, that that's the the subjective versus objective view of are you in a prison? Because prisoners get at least an hour of daylight. So you can't right. keep somebody in their room in the hospital and then them not compare it to prison, right? That's impossible. Sure. Yeah. And and you know, there's the the other argument you hear on the, on that is, well, it's also, you know, not a daycare. It's not a dance hall. It's not, you know, like it's, um, there's just a lot of factors to weigh and the kind of common answer seems to be to address it on a case by case basis. But when you're trying to proactively control an environment, it's really hard when there are no established rules. Right. Is this boarding a relative? So you might have said it, but I, maybe I missed it. Is it a relatively new thing? I've never heard of somebody staying in a hospital indefinitely outside of like hospice or right, like long term care. This boarding is this like a relatively new feature? It is a direct result of the pandemic, as far as I can tell, and as far as I understand it. Oh, interesting. Um, and I I couldn't speak to all of the dimensions of it throughout. You know you know, group homes and orphanages, wards of the state, you know, I don't know. Um, But it is not something that was present prior to the pandemic. And this is why I like to talk to people who are doing the job. Because if I would have talked to somebody in security five years ago, this wouldn't have been a factor, right? So like, this is blowing my mind. I didn't know that there's people boarding in hospitals. And you said there was a legal right for you to keep them. Well, I mean, they're they're not adults, so right. oh, someone so has to be legal. legally responsible for them. Yeah, and, and some are words of the state. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, I think that it's it's a some kind of loophole where you know we because there is a uh, there's a statute uh, called EMTALA that you know I forget what it stands for, but it essentially says 
that we can't refuse anyone care uh, based on whether or not they can pay is the kind of fundamental right. uh, statement of it. And kind of looped into that is this idea that a parent can bring their child to the hospital and we can't tell them no. And then if they leave, we can't release the child unless someone takes them and we can't detain the parent. Right. So. And there are people just abandoning their kids like at a fire station at the hospital. Yes. Wow. And uh, just to be clear, because the show is international, big deal, brush off my shoulder. Uh, this is in Minnesota in the United States of America. This is the, the stats we're talking about. So maybe it's different in your country. Don't get at me in the comments. But for his experience and where he works, this is what's happening. And that's the segment we're looking at. So how are these these borders, for lack of a better word, are they a problem when it comes to security? Like, are they or are they their kids? Like, they're just running around? Like, what? What what issues are you having with them potentially? They are very frequently uh, behavioral patients. Um, you know, uh, oh, the types okay. of you know, so it's health, yeah. right. Um, so I mean, it's uh, we'll get a lot of autistic patients who get left here that and you know who will who are violent or otherwise just difficult for their parents to, to control. Right. Um, we'll we'll get kids who are just haven't committed any crimes to go to jail for, but are kind of in that demographic. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we'll get kids who are trafficking victims um, or right. have just had really dysfunctional upbringings and their parents don't want them. Yeah. You know, we'll get kids who just have crummy parents who, right. you know, are done parenting and, and see you later. Yeah. You know, we've, I mean, I've, there was one instance where uh, a kid's parents dropped him off the hospital and went on a cruise. Like the hospital was babysitting. Yes. Did they come back for him? Eventually. After the cruise. I know that's not funny, but it's it's so <laughs> absurd that laughter is my reaction. Does that make sense? Like, it's just, it's hitting my brain in such a way that I'm like, oh, okay. There's an issue here in, well, I think it's everywhere, where uh, a lot of unhomed people use the ambulance as like a taxi. This sounds like the next level. It's, it's almost like the hospital is becoming a hotel with a concierge service and a transport service and free room and board like that. That is wild. And for a cruise, I can't, I just can't get over that. That's such, that's so wild that people think that's an option. It is clearly, but to like come to that conclusion, you had to have gone down quite the road of let's just leave with the hospital and see what happens. Right? Like that's, that's wild to me. So looking at this, so it sounds like the dynamic is it's switch it's is switching and especially because of the the hospital you're working in I think you're currently working there right is the mental health mm -hmm. hospital right mm -hmm. so that's got to obviously present some other challenges and I'm sure that changes your build your use of force continuum right because where I did a little bit of hospital security as a security as a security constant, and then a little bit of like traveling security constant just means I sat in the room with people that are potential flight risks, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember when I was working on the psych ward, it was everything was different, right? So like what you could do, what you could say, how you could act, the levels of force, like all of it had changed. So have you always worked with uh, in a mental health hospital, or is this like a transitional point? I mean, it's it is we have. We serve a large mental health population. We right. have lots of resources dedicated to mental health, yeah. but it is just an urban hospital. Oh, okay. So, so it's not a dedicated facility. Right. Correct. So we deal with a lot of mental health, um, but we have homeless folks who come in. We have folks who break their ankle. You know, it's, right. yeah. uh, it's a, a wide, as wide a population, I think, as you could serve in a major city. 
which makes this interview fascinating, gives me 100,000 more questions. So when, let's, so event happens, right? So there's an occurrence. Mm -hmm. What is your first steps or what is the first thing you assess in that situation? And does that, obviously that assessment will change what you do, right? So you walk in, if it's just like, two drunk guys yelling at each other or a person having a mental health crisis? Like what are the parameters? What do you go through in those situations? A lot of it is just determining how much I need to be there. Right. Um, one of the, I think that one of the distinguishing characteristics of, of security work. And I would guess, you know, you working as a, a force professional yeah. is that you kind of live in the after Right. We talk about how there, you know, there's the fights this much, and then you have this much before, and you have the after. And you're always considering, you know, am I justified in using force? How much force is necessary? Who is observing? Like, you know, and do I need to be conscious of, you know, visitors or other patients? Or, you know, it's it's a lot of environment management. And excuse me. So I guess that that's the thing is, is that it comes up first is, is this a security question? Right. You know, if somebody's just yelling, yeah. it usually draws my attention. I'll usually go see what's happening. But people yell at their doctors all the time, you know. And so, you know, is that great? You know, I might like pick my head in and say like, hey, everything okay. But, you know, that's that's the kind of highest level of force I want to use if I get involved at all. Right. And there's there's also, I guess, another unique dimension to the hospital is that we are technically support staff for the uh, for clinicians. Right. Um, the only powers that I have at work that the average citizen doesn't revolve around the uh, we, we call it a health officer authority or a hold colloquially. And when a patient is put on hold, I am allowed to physically detain them and to enact clinical orders for patients in the hospital. You know, like if a patient is refusing medication and a doctor orders it, I can physically restrain that person right. so that the medication can be administered. Um, I should never be doing that by myself, but that happens. Right. But yeah. so, so I, I guess that's the other thing is that there's a big consideration of has has clinical staff authorized me to do this right um there are there have been instances where i've seen someone get punched in the face and we've taken control of them and put them on the ground you know which is kind of our our typical protocol sure. and someone on clinical staff will say let them up you know right. we're not gonna we're not gonna seclude them we're not gonna take any restrictive measures on this person right um which what leads to situations where you you ask right up front do I know where, where this person's going to go if I go hands-on with them? Right. You know, are they going to go into restraints? Are they going to go into a room or, you know, or are they going to get up and fight me again right. because the doctor said so? So uh, I guess that's another big consideration is do I have, am I on the same page as, as the staff? I think that's, so there's three, three things you said here. I want to walk out. So okay. number one is living in the after. I really like the way how you phrase that. And I think that's something that more people should do is is live in the if i do this what will happen like what is the consequence dominoes that happen after i do this as a force professional especially when you're duty bound when you have to write a report like you start to just naturally think that way right and i think that's where a lot of self-defense 
instructors are trying to get their clients to do, right, is, is this bar fight worth it? Is this road rage worth it? What are the aftermath events that are going to happen that that might make you not looking like a punk in front of your wife of 30 years not worth it, right? Like mm-hmm. people have these really strange reactions. I I have them all the time because people assume for some reason that because I teach this stuff, I'm above it. <laughs> I am not, sir. I am like, in it, right? Yeah. So so like um, even when I was bouncing, that was still like, you saw it like every day because you can have a bad day. You can be tired. Today, I'm on very little sleep. So if somebody pissed me off, I'm not going to have the, the spoons, as the kids say, to deal with um, those situations, right? Like we're human beings. So living in the after, I think that's a lesson everybody should take here is, is think past your ego being satisfied. Think past the initial emotional reaction, what will happen. And then, right. That, and then is super important. And if you don't have hundreds of uses of force and report writing and supervisors talking to you and debriefing, you're not going to get that skill set, And then you might make a bad choice. Might not always. Number two is, um, I really like you pointed out your, your powers, right? Like I used to make the joke that the, all of my authority came for a $25 shirt that said security on it. Right. Like, and, and I had landlord power, which was, I could treat the bar as if it was my own home. So I could throw people out. That's the authority, at least, uh, doormen and bouncers in Canada have is I could act as if I'm the owner of the bar which though gave us a power above what you had is we were not subservient to, we were the ultimate decision makers, right? Yep. And there are circumstances, there, yep. there are circumstances where that is more true. Right. Uh, when somebody is not in, uh, registered as a patient, yeah. oh, then okay. we, we drift more into that role though there's still some yeah. slippage, which again is, uh, that's uh, something that I think George Floyd played into where there are optics about, who wants to manage the potential fight? Right. Because you know, you know the hospital uh, prefers not to have us drag people out. Sure. But then there are people who need to be dragged out sometimes, and yeah. the cops don't want to do it either. Right. Um, so there's some negotiations and some uh, maneuvering that's required yeah. to kind of navigate those situations to go to uh, go on a tangent. Well, exactly. And that's perfect. That's what you're on the show for that. That's so like, I think that's what forced the force people forget about force professionals. And this is why also you have to watch out who you're learning from, right? Because if the person you're learning from had authority, duty, charter, right, whatever, I don't know what's called in the U S we call it the charter up here. The power of the charter is how police arrest. They might have different affordances and different things that they could do. And they default to that you as a civilian or a security guard or a bouncer might not be able to do, right? So really pay attention to that. But yeah, I think it's interesting with the, like you mentioned, the support staff side is that was the best part about being a bouncer because, and you have to look at why. And the reason why is in the bar industry, tips are the engine that make it run. So bartenders want to get people so drunk to give money to each other. So they'll say, don't throw them out. So we had to have the authority to be like, nope. Because we weren't working off of tips. We were outside of the economy, right? So we could we could drag them out. Where in this situation, of course, a doctor should know more about the patient than the random officer that walks into the room. So I just I don't think people think about this stuff enough where like these rules are in place and these powers are given in theory for decent reason. At least there's some thought put into it, right? Well, and it, it's this there's a saying that comes up way too much which is that there's a lot of gray area yeah and like you know it's there are always cases where it seems like the rules ought to be different sure 
right? Um, there yeah. are always cases where you'll look at a patient and you'll be like, he's been tearing up the ER for three hours and he <laughs> like is obviously just doing it to be a jerk, you know, right. like he, you know, I, I've had, you know, I, I had a guy who uh, assaulted me a while back and, um, you know, I, the, I'd been talking to staff for literally a day beforehand trying to figure out why the hell we didn't discharge him. Right. But we never did. You right. Know? So it's, there's, there's always this kind of weird slippage yeah. between how the rules are, are kind of established and what they mean in practice. Right. And then I think that also comes down to a, like the exceptions shouldn't always change the rule if the exceptions are so rare, right? Like people our brains are negatively wired. They have negativity bias. So we remember the bad stuff. You don't remember the 800 times the policy worked. You remember the right. one time it didn't work. Yeah. You're like, we got to change this shit. You're like, but do you, or was this a shitty day? And there's no policy that's going to work. I'm not defending the policy. I just know there's, you know what I mean? There's like both sides of this. I remember because I still teach baby bouncers. And when I say baby, 18 is legal drinking age here. So I have 18 year old kids being like, oh, I'm the boss now. I'm like, oh my God, I was you. I get it. I know why all doormen roll their eyes at me. I'm at that point now. But like these people, these young people are making these decisions and they believe they're better than the conventional wisdom. And sometimes they are, but that's also an exception, not the rule, right? Most of the time they're just, oh, I could do this better. It's like, uh, obviously all of us thought of that too, bro. And it didn't work for us on that same point, right? Yeah, yeah. So you are, you're obviously finding security work fulfilling because you're continuing mm -hmm. to do it. You said you don't really know a lot of what happened before, but you probably have guards who have a bit more, who've been on the job longer. Sure. Have they brought things up that they think have changed, whether for the better or for the worse, post George Floyd, especially because you're in the epicenter where that happened? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, it sounds like if you go back maybe a decade or so, it was yeah. it was the Wild West there. Yeah, like everyone, um, yeah. Right. So they'll talk about, I mean, the, the way it's set up now, like I said, we have teams of psych staff who kind of help to manage patients and, and in many cases allow us to be more proactive by, you know, we have a, say we have a patient who uh, might escalate and potentially become violent, but we can address like things that they need. And, you know, it's, we can be more carrot, less stick. Right. Um, but a decade ago, there was, you know, one security officer in the ER and then, you know, he had backup somewhere in the hospital. Sure. And so, you know, probably a force was used a lot more often and right. the level of force was probably a lot higher because they also have implemented uh, shortly before I got there, we got tasers, we got pepper spray. Okay. Um, you know, and previously that uh, was hands-on and baton. Yeah, right. The old stick. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, literal stick. But, uh, you know, so I think that, I think that many have lamented that, you know, there's a, I think there's a, an inclination in established security folk to, you know, just assume that you could give somebody a good ass whooping and it would, you know, salt, cure cancer, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and I think that, that they tend to agree that the, the current situation uh, is at least one for growing pains within hospital security that, that it is general. I mean, if you look at the number of assaults on staff by patients, on patients by patients, the number of injuries that have happened as these changes have rolled up in my hospital, it 
it is, it seems to me to be unquestionably higher. Right. Um, I haven't looked at data for it. Um, I can only say I read this many reports that are, that feature these kinds of things. Yeah. So it seems to me that it is inarguably less safe and it's a matter of what trade-offs are we getting for that and what trade-offs can we expect to see down the line as we figure out what this new kind of less restrictive environment looks like. Yeah. And um, is that a cultural shift or is it a policy shift, right? Like are people just less respectful now than they were 10, 15 years ago? Yeah. Well, and, and one could lead to the other, right? If, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain kinds of people who, if they realize they have more leeway, they're going to take it. That is correct. Yeah. You know? And so I think that, that that is a pervasive attitude among all personnel. I would venture to say that the ones who've been there longer are a little bit better at going with the flow, if only because their retirement depends on it. Uh, and that's that's the key to all humanity is when is my payday coming? All right, Shane, uh, that's it. That's it for the free show, everybody. Shane, thank you so much for your time. Uh, so I got a book coming out. I do my promo first because people listen. Uh, I got a book coming out. It's supposed to be out now. It's not. I'm looking at I, I, just some stuff happened. It was summer and my kid was here and I didn't feel like working. So I didn't. Uh, I had money in the bank and I got lazy. That's how I work as a, as a human being. So uh, I have less money in the bank now. So my motivation is higher. Uh, I'm hoping like I'm working on it over this next month, ideally end of the year, but uh, I hope I would want to say October, but I'm really sick of promising it and not delivering it. But it is, I want you to know, it's not like in my head. It's first draft is done. I'm just going through it and changing it. Like it's, it is a book. It's just not ready for public consumption yet. So it is coming soon. Thank you to all the people who pre-ordered it. Um, you can pre-order if you want to, you get a signed copy. Uh, or you can just get it when it comes out. There's no rush on it. Uh, timeline of self-defense. Uh, do you want to promote anything? I study jiu-jitsu at the Keishikan Dojo based out of MKG North in Moundsview, Minnesota. You should check those people out. They're great. Awesome. Casey Kekaisen is one of your instructors. We actually have him coming on the show in the next couple of weeks talking about his tier program. I'm excited to hear about that and the recovery. And also Casey fits the criteria. He's still doing the job. So I really wanted to have him on the show because he has those changes as well. Shane, thank you so much for your time. Listeners, thank you so much for listening to podcast, sharing, subscribing, being on Patreon, all that stuff. We're going to jump over to Patreon right now for uh, the extra content with Shane. Don't forget, uh, so these will be coming a little bit more consistently. I want to get to the end of season two as quick as possible. But also I'm looking, I'm asking people on the Randy King Live page. So if you're on Facebook, because you know, you're at that age demographic, my daughter makes fun of Facebook. But if you're on that age demographic, jump on the Randy King Live community. Um, I'm asking people what changes you want to the show, what people you want to have on it, et cetera. I want to do some tweaks for season three. We're starting to get sponsors now and people are paying me. So I want to really bring the numbers up. We're done. Thank you, Shane. We're going to Patreon. We'll talk to you all next week. Question mark. Oh, Shane, I like the visual.